What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you are listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what makes their businesses tick? Today, I'm talking to JT Marino, one of the two co-founders behind Tuft and Needle. JT, thanks so much for coming on the show. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Tough the Needle is a direct-to-consumer mattress company, and I hope it's not too cliche to say that you guys have disrupted the mattress industry. You and your co-founder, Dehi, started the company back in 2012. You grew it to over $100 million in revenue in under five years, and I'm sure that's even higher today. And somehow you did all of this without raising any money at all from investors. Did I get all of that right? That's right. Yep. So your background is in software engineering. You got a degree in computer science, and you and your co-founder actually met while the two of you were working at a tech startup in Silicon Valley. How does one go from software engineer to mattress tycoon? Yeah, it's a a little bit strange, and uh, that's that's definitely part of the story. Uh, We actually met in college when we were in school. I was studying computer science and mathematics, and he was on the uh, information science and cybersecurity um, college of IST. And, um, yeah, we we basically hit it off, um, recognized, um, you know, we're like our Personalities are a really good match. We worked side by side on our on our projects outside of school, and um, in a matter of a few years, um, ended up back together after we after we graduated um, at a, at a startup in Palo Alto. And in, in this in the time span in between, had um, had our hands in several several other startups. But um, yeah, so when we were we were essentially, you know, building the next app as as many other companies um, were um, in Silicon Valley at a company, and decided that you know we wanted to change it up and start something of our own. And um, and what we did was we outlined some criteria of what that company should be like because we hadn't yet uh, discovered what that idea would be. But we wrote out the rules of what the idea and how the company would be built uh, would need to abide by. And one of the top of the list um, items was to build a company that uh, solves a real problem. So we knew we had to search for a problem first before we started, like, you know, mashing up ideas or pulling inspiration from other companies. Uh, The second item on that list was to start our company fully bootstrapped. All of our previous experience had been a part of companies that have raised a lot of capital, and we've got we've definitely gotten to see a lot of the negatives and downsides of that. Not saying that raising capital is a bad thing, um, it just wasn't something that we wanted to to really do with with this new business. Um, so, with that as a starting point, we we both um, spent a, a few weeks doing retrospectives on our own lives, searching for that problem, and we built this basically a list of um, of you know, uh, problems and, and concepts. And one of the, one of the items that we kept going back to was shopping for a mattress, which is strange. And if you, um, if you really look at everything we've ever built, it was always digital. Um, we, we definitely, um, have some experience and I, and I definitely have some experience in design and product development digitally, but jumping into something as, as weird as, as mattress was, was, uh, was so odd that it kept catching our eye. And uh, so we, we essentially took that as the starting point and we took a legal pad and we wrote at the top the hate list and we wrote down everything that we hated about shopping for a mattress and everything that we um, hated about a mattress itself. 
Because if I were to tell you this story and it would take probably another hour of like my entire nightmarish campaign for finding a good mattress when I was really starting my career, you would understand that there were definitely a lot of pains. And the, our theory was if there was, if I had all these pains and Dehi had similar pains when he went shopping uh, for one, then maybe other people do too. So, so really using this, this hate list as our weapon, and it was really, uh, it wasn't rocket science. It was, it, it was from the perspective of if we were to build a mattress company from scratch with everything that we know about customers experience and a tight feedback loop and product development and design and all of those things that we've really learned from uh, the tech industry and were to build a company from scratch, what would it be like? So um, drawing a line down the center and writing on the on the other end, just what we would do instead for each of those items essentially became our feature set. What we then did was we reduced it to what would be the MVP um, to just be really just one or two steps forward from um, the status quo or raising the bar of the industry. And then we built a single page website. We used a photo stock image of a mattress. We took those uh, features and uh, wrote those out as our value proposition. We, we installed a, a credit card form, which happened to be uh, happened to be Stripe. And we launched that that website. And uh, Dehi uh, started a, an advertising campaign on Google. And then within the first 15 minutes, we had an attempt to, uh, to purchase this, uh, this product that had not yet existed. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't end up um, capturing the funds. You know, it, we, we set it up so it wouldn't, it wouldn't fully process. But there was our cue that we were on to something. And then we shut our site down. We quit our jobs. And we got working on um, starting Tough the Needle. And that was in June of 2012. And through the summer is when we were um, prototyping, figuring out the supply chain, figuring out really how to start a physical product company, um, how the industry worked, um, building out the site, website and the, and the brand, and then officially launching in October of 2012. And that was funded with essentially just a few thousand dollars from each of us because we, you know, quitting our jobs, we had to really rely on our savings to, to pay the bills, pay the rents, you know, buy food. Plus, we had to, you know, put some money into opening a business account and, you know, and firing up a few advertisements. And, um, and that's what we did. And then from October of 2012, it took us about two months. Um, actually, I would say about four months to, to, to really get to, to ramen profitable. So we were able to just barely pay our bills, the minimum required to live. Um, and really, that was our sprint with a fire at our ass to, to get going. Okay, so this is cool. What does the math look like behind how you reach ramen profitability selling mattresses when you started off by only investing a few thousand dollars each? Yeah, so you know uh, what we both did, we both did essentially an audit of our expenses, rent, electric, all that stuff, and what would be the cheapest amount of food we could buy to stay alive. Um, and then we looked at each other's minimums, and then we went with the greater one. We ever since we've always paid ourselves the same, and only increased our our pay as um, we knew it wouldn't impact the company's growth or success. So for the first, essentially the first two and a half years, we kept ourselves that low of, of pay, hiring many people um, and only raised ourselves when we knew it wouldn't have any impact on the company's growth or trajectory. And then as far as like when we, when we officially started, we knew we had about uh, four months each to float ourselves. Um, that was essentially our, you know, they, they, you talk about runway with raising capital. Our runway was our, was our savings accounts. 
And we had four months to figure it out. And we, in the nick of time, it was at the end of the third month, we um, we saw that we were able to um, to cross that line and finally pay ourselves. Were you guys bootstrapping this from San Francisco or from Silicon Valley and having to pay rent in the Bay Area? Um, the rent was, uh, yes, I was in Palo Alto at the time. Um, and, you know, you know how expensive that is. So um, when we did that test with the single page site, I was sitting in Cooper Cafe uh, down, um, just off University Avenue in Palo Alto. Um, and Dehi was um, uh, in Phoenix. And when we officially launched Tough the Needle, I at that point had um, relocated to his apartment. And I was married. So <laughs> that was interesting going to a remote relationship for almost almost nine months, which was definitely a challenge as well. Sleeping on Dehi's floor, you know, my wife sitting back in Palo Alto. You guys strike me as having been extremely organized, extremely forward thinking, well prepared and committed to your startup in the early days, whereas a lot of people sort of just throw caution to the wind. Who were your role models and where were you learning to do things like put up a fake landing page to see if people would buy it? And where were you learning to do things like forecast out your runway and make sure that you could survive to ramen profitability? To be honest, uh, neither of us have role models or mentors. You know, I early days, I'd always been seeking that Kung Fu master that would take me to the top of the mountain in Tibet and train me. And I would come come down as like a champion to fight. And I've always looked for that master and I've never still have never found that person. And I think that's a unicorn and it doesn't exist. What we've done was, you know, just reading everything from all the top magazines to a lot of the top business books. To be honest, I'm fully burnt out on reading business books. I feel like I've read the majority of, of the good ones. And I've had to switch to, uh, to fiction to kind of uh, re- repair my uh, dislike in reading. I've always loved reading <laughs> and sort of got burnt out. Um, but uh, Cora and friends and family, even even our parents were, were great advisors. And it was really driven by, you know, you hear, you hear entrepreneurs are really big risk takers and that's what it takes. And I don't agree with that. And I don't think that that's always the case. Dehi and I, yes, we take risks, but we take very calculated risks. So as an example, rather than coming up with an idea, pitching an investor, raising capital, building a team, getting an office, building your product over the course of you know, a few months to a year, and then launching to find out it doesn't work, we were thinking, how could we do this in a week and save ourselves some time? It's the cheapest, fastest way we can just test it so we know somebody is willing to pay us who doesn't know us. And that's what we were, um, you know, we were dead set on. And that's the approach we've really taken with everything. And especially when you have to fund your growth with your profits. And we started with, I think it was a total of six grand. You can't take big risks. You know, you want to take big giant steps and, you know, take a big stance in your marketing and all that. But you have to, you know, sort of be careful. So we've always really tested um, some of our big riskier ideas um, before we really invested them. We, we never really make any bet the house kind of moves. On that note, what made the two of you decide to start your own business in the first place? Because most of the software engineers I know, especially in the tech industry, are perfectly happy to keep working at their normal jobs. You know, I think there, that, that's a very loaded question and, and the answer would also be really loaded. There's a lot of aspects to it. It was really driven emotionally. We were at a, at a company that was the, it was a caricature of startups. It was really, you know, the, the, the reason why Silicon Valley on HBO is, is uh, so funny to me personally is because a lot of what's happening has re- was really happening in, 
in our company that we were at. And um, I'm just going to be honest that that's a lot of the you know similar stories I heard at other startups as well. And I was very inspired and excited, you know, ever since a kid, my dad telling me stories of Steve Jobs versus Bill Gates. And, you know, this is back when I was in middle school. I'd always wanted to move to Silicon Valley and get my hands into um, building something that really, really mattered. And yeah, I mean, I, I finally got there and, and there, there definitely is a lot of innovation. There definitely is a lot of great things happening, but at the same time for every great thing happening and every great innovation, it feels like there's like hundreds of other companies that are just small iterations or sort of, why are you spending, why do we have all this brain power on this? Like what, what about these other problems? And it, it really led to a burnout of, you know, the um, 80 hours um, sleeping under the table, just cranking nonstop on something that you kind of wonder, does this thing that I'm building really, really matter? Is this a problem that really needs to be fixed? And that's why I, I would suspect that we were so open to the idea of jumping out of the software industry, but taking everything that we've learned and applying it to well, in our particular case, the mattress industry is something that's so archaic and the bar being so low, it really gave us an, a serious advantage as we started. It's funny you mentioned that because I spent a few years as a contract web developer for a lot of tech startups. And the pitch to hire me always involved some degree of selling me on the vision, but it never quite worked because the vision was like, we're revolutionizing task management, you know, or we're building, you know, the Twitter clone of, of the future. And it's like, is this really something right. that anyone can get inspired to work on? Right. Exactly. Exactly. It. And that's the feeling that, you know, I've, I've, it had been brewing inside of me and, and that doubt um, every time I would hear a pitch or every time I would hear, the, uh, you know, uh, the next startup name or, or something, it was, um, I've essentially gotten burnout on this on startup culture is really what it, what it amounted to. And so did Dehi. So, I remember the walk very, spe- very uh, specifically. We we took a walk to Willow, the Willow Market, um, as as I did, you know, a lot of nights and through throughout the week at night. And we went on this walk, and we were just commiserating, inventing, and realized that we had to do something. Something had to change. And I just said, "Hey, hey, man, like, what if we just what if we just started our own thing?" And we did it our way. And we and we built the company we wanted to work. You know, we've always wanted to work for. And he's, it didn't even take an instant. He's like, let's do it. And it's like, wow, that was easy. Okay, so how are we going to do it? What are we going to start? So we started framing out, well, we didn't know what it would be, but at the very least, we would know it would have to abide by this by these sets of rules. And that's back to that list of rules I was talking about. Number one being start with a problem that was something that we had personally experienced. A lot of people start off by putting together these checklists where they include all of the requirements that their business has to meet. I think that helps them eliminate bad ideas that would end up violating these rules, but it doesn't necessarily make them much better at coming up with an original idea that would match the checklist. How many ideas did you guys have to go through and how many ideas did you consider and throw away before you landed on the idea for what would become Tuft and Needle? We had about 20 on that list and we narrowed it down to four. And I don't, I've not really told this part of the story, but um, we actually built three of them. Tough the Needle, well, you know, it wasn't it hadn't yet been named Tough the Needle at the time, was one of one of those four. Um, another um, was actually taken off. It was taken off and sort of going viral. Um, 
the Reddit community embraced it and was really the, the fuel behind, um, you know, that particular growth. But we, we weren't sure how we were going to get to profitability without raising capital um, within our constraints of the four months of time that we had. So it, unfortunately, and there was rec- a recent acquisition announced, actually it was, I think today or yesterday, it was a company that was um, very, very similar to what we had started back then. But we, it, you know, we, um, another one, we made a sale and then another one really was going to be a long-term um, B2B sort of contract situation. And um, we were constrained. I think, I think one of the great things about having constraints is it forces you to make decisions. It also forces you to innovate. So like, as an example, when we started this company, we only had a few thousand dollars. So how do you get a supplier, a manufacturer um, that would require a PO, how do you how do you fund the initial inventory that then you would sell to the customer? And then that came down to negotiation. So we negotiated terms um, as far as when we would have to pay for the for the product that would be shipped, and we're collecting the money on the on the uh, on the outset. So you have negative working capital. So essentially, our customers' purchases were funding their actual um, their actual products that would be shipped to them because we wouldn't have to pay them, you know, based on the terms 30 to 45 days later. So that was an example of how we had to figure out because initially how you would typically set up a, a, a relationship with some of these manufacturers is you would have to put that cash out front and we weren't able to do that. So, and we didn't want to have, we didn't want to have, have debt either. So, um, and, and to this day, we have still remained bootstrapped and profitable um, and on on track to to doing between two hundred and seventy five and three hundred million in revenue this year. Jeez. And it we've just had these constraints. They're great because it helps you narrow your decisions, and it also forces you to to overcome some of these really tough challenges because you have to beat your head against the wall to figure out how to get around them. So let's talk about these early days because I think you know coming from the background that you two had, I, I can't imagine it was particularly obvious how to get a mattress company off the ground. What were some of the other challenges that you had to overcome and some of the constraints you had to deal with that forced you to think creatively? Yeah, and it would really depend on what phase we were in. Um, so let me just start with a couple of big challenges for the phases leading up to our launch. So firstly was, how do you make a mattress? And I, I, this all started, you know, this, this pain and this problem, you know, it was about a year prior me buying a big name mattress that I'm not going to name, but you got like everybody would really know it. And I looked at it and I took, I took scissors and I cut the fabric and then I took a, essentially a, a saw, a wood saw. And I started cutting it open. I'm cutting my mattress open in my bedroom and splitting it open. And I'm like, all right, what are all these components? And then I had to figure out what they were like the fabric. What is this fabric? It's not the stuff that my jeans are made of or my shirts are made of. And they later find out what that was. Um, the second was, all right, who makes these parts? Who, um, who can uh, assemble and manufacture these things? And then figuring out and identifying all the manufacturers and really sort of the supply chain um, across the U.S. And I couldn't really find much online. I found one company and now they all have websites because they see this uh, new emerging digital mattress movement that that Tough Need all really um, catalyzed and they all want to be want to be discovered. But at the time it was really all on paper. So I had, I found one manufacturer and I called and spoke to the salesman and I just like berated him with questions. What is this fabric? What is this from? Why is it built like this? And started to essentially reverse engineer how these things were made 
and what were the key factors and um, and actually what the this what a mattress is providing. So it distilled down to pressure relief, support, cooling, and and essentially your manufacturing supply chain, your cogs, your cost of goods. The next step was um, finding a manufacturer. I rented a car and I just, they wouldn't take my calls. I I had to literally drive to them. I, I drove around the country, up and down the East Coast and West Coast. And no one really wanted to talk to me because they didn't know who we were. This industry is like one of the weirdest industries I've ever seen. And um, they, they don't talk to anybody they're not familiar with. So I had to, if they hung up on me, they were still on the list. I'd drive to them and I'd literally walk in their door and see if I can talk to someone on the manufacturing floor or in your office, see if I can get a meeting. And it came down to a small mom and pop shop that was willing to take the chance on us. Um, and then from there, um, and they really were bought in the vision that we wanted to revolutionize the mattress industry and fix it. And really the, the big fix that we were dead set on, and you know, we, we say to disrupt the mattress industry is our goal, but really what it is, the heart of it is making a mattress company that was customer centric. So all of our decisions go back to the customer. Is this the best thing for the customer? Are we making improvements to the product, to the service, to the website, to the information, to the customer service, all those aspects? And that's really the difference in what we what we started here and why we um, are growing so fast in the face of these giant incumbents who don't really know what to do. So from that point and, and, and on the floor of this small mom and pop shop manufacturer, developing a relationship with them, I, I essentially like lived out of my car and was going in the office. They didn't know that, but I was walking in every day and um, they carved out a little space in the factory on the factory floor and started showing me the materials and I, um, I'm, I'm thinking about pressure relief and support and, and trying to understand which materials are best for what and developing that V1 prototype, um, which was essentially what we launched with um, out, out the gate. So anyways, that was those are a couple of the pains, which was figuring out how are these what are how are these made? What are the components? Who are the manufacturers? Finding one that was willing to work with us. You see, the website and the design, all that, that wasn't an issue for us to start. That was really in our core, our, our wheelhouse. So really I had to apply a lot of the, the engineering mindset, going back to first principles. What is the problem that a mattress solves? And then what are my um, available materials and what are the available uh, uh, options for me? And then developing that, that single prototype. And I wasn't too concerned about how successful or how great it was going to be out the door because we were essentially zero. We were small. We would we just want to get a few first few customers and start getting feedback. So I'd say that that was really our biggest challenge. Uh, the other one I would say was time it was working against us. We had to move fast, and especially you know I'm used to I'm used to pushing changes um, to to you know to a software stack and delivering it production multiple times a day. Tight feedback loops with the customer and and whatever problems, bugs, pains, launch, launch, launch all day long. And the cycle for a physical product, you are at the mercy of your supply chain. So if a factory person that you're working with isn't available and, you know, they're going to make some changes and then get back to you next week and then they're going to ship it and then you have feedback and that was killing us. So that's why working, you know, hand in hand on the factory floor was really how we um, zipped forward in, in time. Otherwise, we would have run out of our, we would have burned through our, our personal cash. So um, I would say those were really those uh, initial problems we had, you know, then we start, um, then there were, you know, 
that's the whole next phase was our first year, which I would say is 2013 was a whole nother chapter of, of challenges. Well, let's talk about some of these challenges, specifically how you found your first customers. I asked some people from the Andy Hackers Forum if they had any questions for you. And one, Thomas Gorzinski, who actually owns a Tuft & Needle mattress, wants to know exactly how you found your first 100 paying customers, or your earliest paying customers. So um, it, was, it wasn't any one thing. Um, I don't really believe in silver bullets. Um, I believe in you know, the sum of all things. It was a lot of, a lot of avenues. So it started with family, friends, um, some Google ads that would that work um, some of them, you know, the few that did work and we had to figure that out. Um, another was online communities going out and saying, Hey, I just started this company. Here's the purpose. What do you think? What's your feedback? Not going and trying to pose as some uh, like a, like a sham, like I'm, I'm posing as a, a normal user and I'm kind of trying to sell um, under the hood to you with a link. It was actually just being straightforward. Just launched this company. Here's why we started. What do you think about it? And actually, that worked. People were giving feedback. We were taking it. We were listening, iterating on it. And we were actually starting to get customers from that. Um, Reddit was a huge, huge source for us. Uh, Reddit was one of the key sources for new customers. And it was really feedback driven and, um, and how we did that. And um, you know that was holding us over as we were just starting to figure out some of the digital marketing um, on that side. About a year later, about um, the end of 2013, we wrote a, uh, a post on Hacker News saying um, how we, we wanted to show and share some of our learnings, how we essentially bootstrapped to the number one mattress on Amazon. And that's, that really was the catalyst on triggering an enormous amount of growth because one of the readers happened to be a journalist um, at For, uh, Forbes. It was for, actually, it was Fortune. And when he wrote that article, that's really what started the national press and the discovery. And that's when we started getting a flood of uh, venture capital reaching out. Um, so really, we were prepared for that opportunity that presented itself. But in the meantime, we were scraping it together, starting starting this small cycle of customer feedback, which was driving driving sales through these through these forums and, and family friends. I have so many questions I want to ask you about everything you just said. Let me start with a quick one. I hear a lot about early distribution channels for startups being Reddit and Hacker News and other online communities, Product Hunt, the tech press like TechCrunch. Are there any other channels that you can remember that were particularly effective for you guys in the early days? It was Google Advertising. That was a that was a big one for us, and I mean it's it's really it's available to you. You can spend a small amount of money. I mean that's how we that's how we ran our test. Um, so that I mean Google is still a key partner for us, and we collaborate with them on on their platform. Um, so I would say that's that's definitely one, and that's one that you can use a small amount of money to to, to test a hypothesis. But if you can figure out how to get your value proposition, which is going to be based on your pricing your features and being able to communicate those very well. And if that matches with the serious problem customers have, see, we didn't have to worry about product market fit so much because we were starting with a key problem that we experienced that other people also happen to have. So it was really aligning the, the features, benefits and pricing uh, with um, the fact that that problem was already there and communicating how it solved it. Because it's very counterintuitive to sell a mattress online. Very counterintuitive. At the time it was, it was crazy. And um, it seems like a step backwards. So you're taking a step backwards. You can't, our customers 
couldn't see the product. They had to essentially bet. And it was a step backwards in the sense that our, our company brands, and that's a whole, that's a whole nother um, area I can run with is I didn't, you know, we had to learn what brand actually was and what and how important it is. Yeah, this is something I wanted to talk to you about because buying a mattress is a huge psychological hurdle to get over. I mean, it's expensive, it's a rare purchase, it's physically big. Moving it into your house is inconvenient. Like it's not something you want to get wrong. And so I think people must be pretty hesitant to buy a mattress online that they haven't touched or seen or felt. And it's gotta be a hard sell to make. So it's so you would expect that launching, you know, and selling a mattress online would be a regression. It would be a step backwards in the face of uh, brands that people aren't familiar with and a product that's very intimate and has a tactile need for people to experience before they buy it. It's a, it's a big ticket item as well. So we had a lot of things working against us, but the thing that was working in our favor was the fact that ma- that mattress stores were so bad. You have to walk into this store, which seems like you're going back to 1980 or 1985, and you're you're looking at a, a room that's, that's drop ceiling carpet, posters on the wall and a, and a salesman is trying to sell you, you know, they're trying to sell you. So it's difficult to trust them. And then you have to figure out which one you like, and you can't really know. I mean, I'm telling you, even after all my experience, I have evidence of this. You can't know if a mattress is going to work for you until you've slept on it. So laying on a mattress for a couple of minutes, and of course you don't want to get into your like fetal position or your weird position that you get into when you sleep with a mattress person standing, standing over you, breathing <laughs> on you. So it was just, so even though it was a step backwards, um, really going online because you can't experience it, you know, you, you can't, you don't know who we are. It actually was two steps forward because it was removing a lot of the pain points that people had. So that, that's what we had going for us um, really in the beginning. So when I, so tying that back to, Nailing your value proposition, um, the key features, your pricing, and communicating the benefits very well, and matching that to a to a an important problem that some segment of people have out there, it really set us up to be able to um, figure out how to advertise on Google pretty quick, um, and really set us up as far as like getting the drum rolling and getting the ball or getting the ball rolling with customers. And there's something to be said, and it is, is, was really critical about calling your customers and being honest with them, telling them you're a new company and asking them for their genuine feedback. Like, what did we do good? What did we not do good on? And they're talking to the founder of the company and they know it. And when you say something and then follow up and tell them how you made an improvement and thanking them for it, and maybe even sending them a new product or giving them a little discount um, for the pain that they had. It goes miles. And those people, even when they've had pains, will turn around and they'll tell 10 people. So um, since the beginning, we had to get a lot of things right. It was no one thing. We had to get service right, policy, features, delivery. We had so much stuff that was just wrong and not good that we had to like sprint on. And uh, we always viewed that criticism and negative uh, negative feedback, the one stars, um, the the low NPS scores, customer satisfaction. Those are the gems. Those are the things that you take and you and you feed that into your product roadmap as the very next thing to fix. Because if you can fix it for those, you're going to fix it for your future customers. And developing that relationship with your early customers and asking them, like when a customer is delighted with you, hey, we're new. You know, we don't have a lot of funding. Anything you can do to spread the word would be really, really helpful. 
that actually works. Um, and if they really care about what you're doing and you really solve the problem for them, it'll work. And so that's been a competitive advantage. You know, um, several years later, we had our first competitor launch and they were essentially a lookalike, almost exactly like our model. And we had this disadvantage of not having capital, not being able to acquire and, 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 and buy our customers and be able to go in the red to capture market. We had to grow profitably. So we've had to really lean on our customer word of mouth and virality to help keep our, our cost of advertising low. And, and still today, if you look at the numbers, and I mean, they're not public, but they, you know, there, there is some, some stuff you can, you can find. Our cost of advertising is compared to some of our um, direct competitors that have, you know, launched later um, is almost half and, and we're profitable and we're leading, uh, leading them in unit volume. We're not talked about very much um, because we're not like so much in the press and, you know, the VC, you know, journalists sort of um, echo chamber. We don't really get gain those benefits, but we're still growing like fire in the face of um, very serious competitors are very, very heavily funded. And part of that is getting so many of these aspects right and people being really bought, bought in and what you're, what you're doing and knowing that you're genuine about solving this problem. You know, we, you know, as a founder, you know, people ask, what's your exit strategy? What's your plan to, to liquidity? We never had a plan. There was never a plan. And it wasn't until, I don't know, a few years later when people started to ask, you know, we, because we've, we've given equity to, to, um, to team members that we started to really sort of think about that. And I would tell you that um, when you start a company, you, you know, and then this isn't everybody, but let's just say, let me just use this as an example. We wanted to solve a problem. That was, that's always been our mission. Another is, of course, we would want to, to be rewarded for it and, and to make money someday. But, you know, if you were to order those in priority is number one, like growing this thing and like flipping it or selling it or IPOing, or is it like fixing the problem? I would, I can tell you in the majority of my team wouldn't even need you to prep. I wouldn't need to prep them. You just walk in here randomly and start asking them. You'll see the number one objective for me and my co-founder and this team is to solve this problem and to cross the finish line there. And the second is reward. And that's always been uh, a source of passion and eagerness to, to, to break through some, you know, some of the challenges that we face and take things to the next level and to battle in this field with the competitor, but customers feel it and they help you get there. They know, they know you're the real deal. And that's really helped in our virality you know, and, and keeping our keeping our advertising costs low. One of the ways that we've really communicated those things, and that's that that authenticity is, is in our writing. So we have we have a medium, um, we have a medium uh, channel. That's a lot. Several of our articles have gone viral. We don't write often, but when we do, we put a lot of energy behind it, and we share. and And even on our website, and if you were to talk to our to our customer service team through email, but if you were to buy. You get that feeling and customers see that that authenticity and they know you're in it. They know you're the real deal. And that's just really helped, you know, keep keep the flywheel going. You guys, um, yeah. You guys have written quite a lot on your blog. I was checking it out before this episode and I was pretty surprised to find out that you've written some posts that are sort of behind the scenes at your company. You've got one called How to Grow from $6,000 to $250 million. In addition to the posts that you've written about the philosophy behind your mattresses and what differentiates you from your competitors. In the early days, you guys are tiny. You're trying to take on these huge mattress companies, and you're trying to sell really this no-name mattress 
to people online. And if I put myself in the position of somebody on Reddit considering buying a mattress from you guys, there's no way I'm going to pull the trigger. So what messaging did you eventually settle on and what strategy did you use that convinced people to take a chance on you and buy your mattresses online? Well, that's going to be a brand question. So, I mean, I don't necessarily think this is a big challenge for for a digital startup, but especially for a physical product, um, the customer behavior is a little bit different. If you have a name that people don't know, you need to lean on something else. And that's going to be like credibility markers. You've been mentioned in this this press or you be, become a thought leader in your writing. Or, but, a, but another aspect is reviews. And that's the whole reason that we launched our product on Amazon. It wasn't, we never actually thought anybody would really buy mattresses on Amazon later to find out they really do. But we listed our product on Amazon and started asking our customers to write reviews there. And that was essentially one of those key sources of credibility. We would send people to Amazon to go and read about it. And the more reviews we got, the more credible we became. And eventually we became the, the number one rated mattress on, on Amazon and the, one of the, the top sellers. And we, we dominate that market, um, even in the face of a lot of these other companies. Um, we still dominate dom- dominate that channel, and it really really is a testament to getting that product right and the service right, um, and, and being being authentic. So, in the early early times, we had to be able to point to reviews. We had to be able to point to our story and who we were and why we were, and um, credibility markers as far as press and thought leadership. It was a lot of things that kind of added together. Um, of course, we we had to focus on a few because you can't do it all. Um, you don't want to lose focus. So it really was writing writing a thought leadership piece every few months and then listing on Amazon for those reviews, developing a, a nice tight feedback loop with our customers. We still have a 35% response rate to from all of our customers to our survey um, as far as their satisfaction and why they like or disliked um, the service. And that's led to us having the lowest, if not one of the lowest, if not the lowest return rate in the entire industry, which is below 5%. Um, return rate for a mattress. So, um, so yeah. Now it's now it's a lot easier. You know, as you get bigger, it actually gets easier if you're um, if you're satisfying your customers because people start to recognize your name. And if, you know, I can wear my shirt, um, a tough needle shirt, in New York or San Francisco, L.A., Austin, and people will, will will stop me and ask if if I work there. And now brand awareness is happening. We don't need to focus so much on these um, different aspects of credibility building because people now have your name in their head and they've heard it or they know somebody who has one. You mentioned that you and your co-founder have read a lot of business books. I also tend to read a lot of business books. And one (laughs) book that I finished, I think late last year, is called The Everything Store. It's about Jeff Bezos and Amazon and really the entire history of the company. And they sort of portray Bezos as being particularly ruthless when dealing with partners and competitors. So I'm curious how you think about your relationship with Amazon today. In the early days, the reviews on Amazon helped you build your brand, but now that you guys are much bigger, are there any risks in dealing with Amazon that you're careful to mitigate? Yeah, um, so I think the way to really evaluate risks is to look at what um, your partner's incentives are. And our incentives don't fully align with Amazon. They do partly but not fully. Amazon's goal is to grow their, their, their own markets on their platform. Um, I would suspect that they want all the top brands and all emerging brands to be within their platform and help grow that channel and also to have a nice balance between all of those brands as well. 
And then as those markets mature, it will be most likely more and more difficult for that particular market. Let's just say furniture or, or narrowed down to, to mattresses as time goes on, as they, as they, um, cause they're competing with, you know, the Walmarts and the other big box stores like Target and et cetera. Yeah. It's always been a very big concern for us. If we were to have too much of our volume going through Amazon, then what about our direct channel? What about our ability to get feed, a feedback loop with our customers or show our customers who we really are and how great we, we really we, we really are? So um, it really started with what, 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 is the, what is the amount of risk that we're willing to take? If we, let's just say hypothetically, Amazon was 50 to 75% of our business, Amazon at any time can decide to not sell your product. Um, so we obviously want to make sure that our product's always good and we have a good relationship there, but you still never know. So we we had uh, done an analysis on it and, and decided, well, it may make sense to have a couple other channels to balance Amazon just in case that went away. Another aspect is just keeping, you know, keeping our direct channel very strong. What value can we provide on our own on our own website and in our retail stores that maybe isn't even worth the time of Amazon and that some customers would really prefer to have? Um, some customers really prefer Amazon. Some customers prefer going direct. And there are these particular services and value adds that you can add. Um, here's an example. Uh, you can go into Best Buy and you can buy an iPod. You know, you could buy an Apple product. But why would a person go into to, to, uh, Best Buy to buy that product that's still yet going to an Apple store? That's because there's particular values that the Apple store brings that maybe isn't, isn't really worth Best Buy's time, but is really important to that particular customer. If you think about it, they've got a, a really great lineup of merchandise on the wall. They've got curated, um, let's just say they're toys. They have all kinds of toys and gadgets and accessories that are always ever-changing and a lot of times best in class. That's something new and interesting. You're in the mall. You want to just pop in and see what's there. Another value is you have, you have like uh, the Genius Bar, someone there that's dedicated to fix your product, people that are there to train you and teach you. You get to see the full product lineup. There's a lot of... A lot of benefits to to going direct to um, to Apple's channels, and that's how we've always viewed it as well. Is that we need to provide specific values and continue to push the bar and the envelope with our direct channel, and that's that's going to be one way to help keep balance. It really is in uh, Amazon's best interest too, because this is the channel that we really figure out and do our R and D and our iteration. Uh, which would trickle to products that would that would end up on their platform. So um, figuring out what is that balance as far as wholesale and distribution channels that you're really really willing to take on as a risk. What happens if they go away? Would you be able to survive? Do you track your PL separately from from your your wholesale channels um, and, and distributor channels? If they all went away, can you survive? Um, we do these exercises and we track them uh, very regularly just in case. So, and, you know, and then also our customers want to find these products in other channels as well. They'll tell you, if you listen to them, they're going to say, you know, I just wish I could find your product here or there. And, you know, that just goes into a backlog of new channels for our, our, our head of BD to go, to go and capture. Just like, you know, customers are asking for new product. They're also asking for new ways to find your product. They're asking for new ways to pay for your product. So, um, you know, with, without going into, you know, I don't know how far you want me to go with this, but uh, we just had to evaluate those risks, and they certainly are risks. You guys are located outside of Silicon Valley. You're in e-commerce selling mattresses, and yet somehow you feel like a tech company. And I don't know if it's because you've got a snazzy website, or you're hiring developers, or you're doing content marketing, but you feel like a tech company. Is that intentional? 
Oh, well, uh, Dehi and I are tech guys. You know, we are um, engineers and product developers and designers. So we built our company that way. Um, it's, it's awesome because a lot of people in this company, you know, and you, everyone from supply chain to customer experience who had never worked in Silicon Valley, they all know what a Scrum is. They all know what agile development is. It's, it's awesome because um, I essentially took all those concepts and applied it to everything else. So we have agile development when it comes to supply chain and um, customer service tools that we have in the back end and even customer service policies. We treat everything like a product. Everything's tied to a feedback loop. Everything that we do um, is for someone else. Um, our engineering team may... Um, you know, their customer may, may be the customer experience team. It might be the supply chain team. It might even be the finance team or a factory. And they're building the tools for those customers and they have feedback loops and we treat everything the same all the way back to even the mattress itself or the pillow or the sheets and, and all of that. So um, from the root, um, we, we've always wanted to build, to start the company the way, way, the way we wanted to finish it. And um, knowing that the more people that come in, the paths that you walk down, the decisions you make early days are really going to set it up for the later days because you're going to bring on leaders and um, you want to have proven that these methods work so that they're adopted and the leaders accept them um, or maybe even future investors. And that was one of the reasons we decided to bootstrap was we wanted to build a company in a very specific way and prove that it could work before we would potentially bring on bring on an investor or, or potentially go public. Um, and have all these additional outside stakeholders. So um, from in our core, we uh, are a product company and really through a tech company lens, taking what you know Silicon Valley has has really innovated and we've kept building it building the whole company that way. So I know you guys have done a lot of iteration on your products themselves to make your mattresses the best that they can be. But I wonder how much iteration you've done with your growth and your marketing strategies. You mentioned using Amazon as sort of a channel for experimentation. What are some strategies you've used to attract new customers that ended up not working out? And how do you know when to continue pursuing a strategy that's not doing as well as you'd hoped and when to call it quits and move on to something else? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, there's a lot of those. Um, let me see. Let me narrow it down to something that didn't work, but then we figured out. So uh, retail is one of those. And we were we were warned about going, you know, they call clicks to bricks, going from a digitally native brand to actually being in the experiential world, going to the tactile world um, and opening a, a brick and mortar store. Some of the um, the variables and uh, the, the advisors I've had on retail are insane. I've I'm not, I'm not going to name drop or anything, but I've had a lot of really, really great advisors from people who have figured out retail from some of these digitally native brands to some of the biggest brands in the world actually advise on retail. But the culmination of all the advice and a lot of the advice from different people was conflicting was you don't know if it's going to work or not. You just have to do it. So that's what we did. And it started with opening a store in our office. And if I were to describe this to you, it was it was um, in a really bar- bad part of Phoenix in the strangest location. It was in the warehouse district in downtown, which is sort of the ghost town part of, of, the, of the area, up a rickety staircase that we had. And now we've since moved out of this. And we took the one of the front offices, which was right inside the door, and we converted it into what we thought like maybe would be a prototype of a, of a, of a retail store for, for mattresses. And what we did was we just listed our, um, our retail store on Yelp and Google, and we didn't even put it on our website. And the first week, nobody came. Second week, we had one. 
And then the third week we had two and then zoom forward about six months at a, at 11 AM on a Saturday, you would literally see a line of people standing on the staircase and you'd walk in and there would be roughly anywhere between 50 to 150 people standing in our office all around us while we're jamming away, working on our computers, waiting to try this one mattress, which then expanded to five uh, display areas in our office. And we knew, and our attorneys were yelling at us because of the staircase and all this, that there was definitely a need and there was this was definitely serving a need for our customers. The question always was, can we get the unit economics to work? Because if you look at our mattress, it's a, you know, a lot of cases, it's half to a third, even a tenth of the price of some mattresses out there. And can you actually get it to work w- with all the overhead and, um, you know, staff and, you know, paying your lease and, and all that, let alone just a focus loss that you would have in, in setting up um, and putting a lot of focus towards figuring out a retail store. So it was working in our office. We weren't sure if we had the unit economics right. It's very difficult to measure success of a retail store when somebody can just walk out and buy online. And... If you try to collect their email when they walk in, they might use a different email online. Their husband or wife might use their email or it's it's very, very difficult to attribute sales. So we hadn't even figured out how we could even measure if it would be successful. Um, but we knew something was there because we saw the volume. You could, you could literally drive to the next 10 mattress stores in, within the region and they'd be empty. And But yet we'd have 100 people standing in our store, you know, getting upset because they can't, you know, if they wait, they have to wait in a queue. So um, our next move was to open a store in uh, San Francisco and we signed a short-term lease, which has then um, expired. And um, we, had, we intend to reopen a store there. We now have five, five other locations, um, not in San Francisco, but um, uh, around the U.S. And I mean, we made a lot of mistakes, but that's what we were told. We were probably going to need to open three to five stores before we would actually figure out how to measure if it's working and if it was worth our time. And figure out the the um, staffing model to figure out how to negotiate leases and how to you know how much square footage you needed. These are all questions we just had no clue what was the right way of doing any of that. So we had to just like guess, and we guessed, and we decided we earmarked some cash and decided if this thing totally bombed, were we fine? Were we in the red or were we fine? And that's when we knew it was okay. Um, we would be fine if it totally bombed. Um, that we could pull the trigger and sign a lease in San Francisco and do a build out. And then there's construction and all that, which is a, a whole nother sort of nightmare until you really, really figure out that process. But I would say that in our retail store, we proved that there was demand. Um, San Francisco, we had not figured out how to attribute sales and to measure success. And it was very expensive. When we opened our Scottsdale store, that's when we finally figured it out. Um, we, we, May, we took a lot of the learnings from San Francisco and we baked those into um, our Scottsdale store here in Arizona and the store's on fire. So now we are just sprinting to opening as many stores as we possibly can, you know, especially especially next year. We have a few more coming this year. We, I think we just announced Kansas City and there's another city I'm not sure if we have or not. Uh, we have Seattle already open. Um, but anyways, so that was definitely um, one of those things we weren't sure Another one would be out-of-home marketing. It's also a very difficult um, way of advertising that no one has really seemed to be able to attribute um, sales, profit, and success to in the face of digital advertising um, blended with it. Um, and I would say the first time we, we, we ran it, we, we got one billboard. And then we were told, well, you're not going to be able to measure anything. So we, then we got 200 billboards. You know, So 
yeah, those, those are a couple examples. You guys didn't raise any money at all, and yet you've been able to grow your business's revenue as fast as most successful venture-backed companies are able to grow. You started off buying and then selling mattresses to people basically on Reddit, and today you, you're doing expensive things like taking out billboard ads across the country and opening retail stores. How do you grow that quickly when you're limited to only being able to spend what you've made in profit? Really, it's it's casting bets and um, staying focused. So we, uh, I would say from that third month when we finally figured out you know, how we could in a minimal way advertise and really lean on our customers and rely on them to help spread the word to um, expanding, you know, having a lot of ideas. We have, there's so many things that at this point we know what to do. We just have to wait until we have the resources for, and that's between cash and overhead. And we have to stay lean as well. So it was really um, balancing our budgets. And there, there was a point in time where we realized we needed to get our finances in check and we had to hire a bookkeeper and then later on a, a CFO, which thank God, because that was right when we needed, needed to bring him on. And we started doing forecasts and plans and all of that, but really um, staying, you know, we would always um, earmark some percentage of our, um, of our budget towards testing new channels without sacrificing really the speed of growth and the channels that we know are working. So um, we, we, we generally measure in the, as a percentage of revenue how much we are willing to market what that budget is. And then we then take a percentage of that and then um, delegate that towards potential new channels. And that's money that we're willing to throw away for the sake of experimentation and the hope of finding um, a new method of advertising. And one of those was billboards and radio and television. And it took us about two and a half years of experimentation to finally figure it out. And I mean, another dynamic is just debates within the company. There are people that are more risk averse than others and want to sort of give up. And it's sort of, this is where founder power matters and just really pushing forward and without putting too much of a risk at your, of your growth and profitability in your main channels to keep going, keep going, don't give up on it and, and divert the money too soon. Um, I also believe there are other channels that we've we've tried that we, we gave up on too early that we need to get back to. Um, I think that we didn't give it enough time to to really figure it out. So I, I think to answer your question, it comes back to staying like totally not completely not totally, but mainly focused on on uh, what is working and writing that until it really starts to slow down. And in the meantime, be incubating with a percentage of that spend um, some new concepts and new ideas in the hopes of finding something new so that when this primary growth channel, let's just say Google, let's say Google AdWords, when Google AdWords sort of reaches the top of that S curve and starts to round you're going to need an innovation or a breakthrough to kick it back into gear, or you're going to need some of one of these new incubated uh, channels to sort of pick up this slack and, and fix that S curve. And hopefully you found something new. Maybe it's YouTube, maybe it's Facebook. Well, one thing I can tell you is when you've got just a couple people doing that, you know, marketing, you don't want to spread them across like five or six things too soon. You want them to be fully dedicated on what's working and, and, and use and use those profits to then bring somebody on to do that experimentation. So 
that it's sort of a mindset and a discipline, setting budgets and abiding by them. And this, you know, a key strategic meeting you do every month as founders or, or some subset of your group is to look at the look at the PL and the percentage of, um, of of all of your line items and deciding if you're going to move some money from you know, this line item to that line item. And for us, it's it always seems to be profit. Do we want to go a little bit leaner to move some of those percentages to marketing? Or do we, you know, and it's and that's part of the strategy. And, and that's where we've used a lot of advising, a lot of guess and check. So that's really like the key activity, I would say, and, and, and the idea and how you drive um, a lot of those decisions. That's great advice on multiple levels. You're talking about this S-curve and how it sort of levels off over time and mapping that on to your marketing and growth channels as a startup, which will eventually start to see diminishing returns. And I think, you know, how do you navigate that? That's one issue. But for a lot of early stage founders, just hearing that this S-curve exists is useful information. Because I think the most common mistaken belief is that there is no such thing as diminishing returns. You know, you just find a marketing channel for your product and you start pouring resources into it and you sit back and you watch all the customers and the revenue come in and it just lasts that way forever. But the reality is that as you grow, you start to saturate these marketing channels. They end up becoming less effective over time. And you've either got to find some way to break through that ceiling or you've got to move on to a different channel. And obviously, it's not easy to decide which one of those two is the right option. Yeah. I mean, if you've got, if you're getting traction on one channel and you, for every dollar you put in, you get some number of dollars back, you want to be careful about starting to spread those dollars to something else that is an unknown. And at the same time, you also have to think about mindshare. If I have somebody fully dedicated on a channel and then they have to pick up another channel, are they thinking as deeply about the, the one that you know works? Or are they really put, taking it to its fullest potential? You know, if for something that's so important, let's just say I'll just, I'm, you know, this is an example we, I keep going back to because it's a good one. It's a good one to talk about because I think a lot of people are familiar with it is Google AdWords. Do I want my person who's fully focused on Google AdWords thinking about how to make a breakthrough or how to how to compete in that in, on that channel from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed versus spreading their mind share across several other channels, especially in a market that is very, very competitive. The, the mattress industry is, is ruthless and became even more ruthless as we had uh, new entrants and new, new um, lookalike companies that were heavily funded that can sort of just raise the, your CPAs just by throwing more money at it and have the freedom to, to go in the red. And, and we don't. So, um, you know, that's just sort of how we've always, always viewed it. So let's talk about that for a second. You mentioned earlier that you guys lean a lot on virality and word of mouth growth to keep your cost of customer acquisition low. How do you do that in a way that your competitors can't? And can you just walk us through how you look at your competitors and maybe how that's changed over the lifetime of your business? So our focus has always been the customer. And um, I'm very cautious about the team thinking about competition too much. Um, so uh, the general rule here is to stay focused on ourselves and where we're going, but to keep an eye on what's happening. Because you can learn a lot of things from competition but at the same time, if a competitor announces, hey, we're going to launch this thing or we're going to go over there, it doesn't mean it's going to work. And also their game is totally different. Um, you know, if we were to take some of our funded competitors into account, they can play the game totally different than we can. Um, it's just we're, we're competing, but we're playing, you know, we're playing two, two sort of different sports. So 
being fully fully dedicated to the customer um, and um, our one key metric, our one metric to measure as a company as a whole is NPS, which isn't a perfect way to measure. And I would say most ways of measurement always has its pros and its cons, but it's good enough. And NPS is a way of measuring customer satisfaction. And our goal was always to get to the level of the greats, the, the household name brands that are most loved in, in, um, in you know, the greater market, like, and I'm sure you can name them, I'm sure you know them. And so our target was always a 75 NPS. And I can say, as of this morning, we're 76, we'll bounce between 80 and down to 72, but generally we're around 75, 76. So we've gotten there. And it is essentially a, uh, it's correlated to word of mouth and it's correlated to virality. One of the best ways of uh, marketing is um, having a friend tell you to get something. And that's what we've really had to lean on. If we go into a new market that we know we have a lot of customers and we put up advertisements and people start talking about them, when they say that to their friends or family or thanks, you know, around the table at Thanksgiving, um, if someone at that table has one and they are really happy, they're going to say, oh, trust me, get it, you know, versus uh, it's okay or bad experience, I'm telling you, you're making a mistake. You know, what is what is happening there? And so that's one of the ways it's really reduce our costs. Because if we have to fully rely on our advertising to convince somebody to take a chance on us, that's expensive. If, if, versus if we were to go out and advertise and then those people are hearing, you know, uh, their friends talking in their ear telling you about this company that they know, and they can even tell you that this company's founding story and why they exist and what's special about them, that's even better. That's back to brands. That's been a competitive advantage that we've had and why we've been able to keep our um, our cost of advertising low. On the, on the other side is also creativity. So if you look at how we advertise, we're not like this lifestyle kind of fallen and blend in with other with other companies. We did this really here's here's a, another an example that speaks to a question you asked of something that we did that was a mistake. We did this really expensive um, video shoot like for a television commercial and I think it cost something like half a million dollars. And the output of that was a single commercial and it was polished, it's beautiful um, and if you know we ran this commercial and we just didn't get much response. And as I'm watching it and I see it running on TV, I realized it looks like every other commercial on TV next to all these big brands, like really cool, like awesome. Like we have a commercial like them, but it just looks like them all. It doesn't really stand out. So then what we did was we took an approach of actually being a little bit polarizing or, do, or taking our content and advertising our messaging in a way that really kind of stops you in your tracks. And with our billboards, which originally started with lifestyle imagery, okay, that's cool. It looks, you know, it's a sexy photo. You know, the product looks really, really cool. And, you know, some, you know, some clever line. What we did was we went up with these black billboards and all it said in white text was mattress stores are greedy. Learn the truth, tn.com. And that billboard was on fire because people were taking pictures, posting it on Reddit, like tough to needle savage. And there's people that hate it and people that love it. And in the meantime, they're talking about our company, our television commercials. We have one that's silent. We have a commercial that's upside down. People think we've made a mistake. We're about to launch some new advertisements, which I'd love to, I'd love to share afterwards that are unlike anything you've seen. They're just, they look like they were made in, you know, um, you know, by some college kids, you know, with no budget, you know, like almost, you know, uh, 
Blair Witch Project status, um, commercials that really stand out. That's another aspect to keeping your advertising low is, is um, developing content that speaks to your customer, stops them in their tracks. They're like, wait, what was that? And they like turn and look, you got to catch their attention. And then the next part is you've got to get them the rest of the story. So it's sort of your hook. And then you tell them who you are. And so TN.com, if you go to TN.com or you go to Tough to Needle, TN.com directs to our homepage and it puts a video on the, on, on the hero image. If you go to Tough to Needle, you get a different experience. That video tells the other half and completes that narrative. And now you know who we are and why we are. And that's also been extremely relevant because if you're battling in AdWords and all you've got is this one line piece of text and you finally figure one out, but then your competition realizes it and then they start using the same line, it's so difficult for customers and it causes so much cognitive dissonance, which is one of the key problems we were solving for the customers when we started was, you know, paradox of choice and not knowing how to shop and what's good, what's bad, and just general confusion. And that's what really a lot of times happens. And so you have to constantly be thinking outside the box on um, advertising methods and ways and tricks of catching someone's attention and um, getting out of the noise. That also was helpful in keeping our costs low as opposed to just throwing some money to some outside agency and saying, make us a viral commercial, and then they come back with something that looks like everyone else. You mentioned earlier that part of bootstrapping is that you just have these phases where your strategies and your plans have to wait for your revenue to catch up because that's that's really all you've got. I mean, you have no other way to fund these experiments. But it sounds like what you're saying now is that you're somehow using this limitation to your advantage, which is fascinating. Are you saying, I mean, is it that the constraints that you're under force you to be more creative and do things that your competitors won't do? What's stopping them from approaching TV commercials and billboards the same way that you are? And how do you outpace them when they have this additional advantage that they can afford to go into the red, whereas you can't? That's that's exactly it. So being bootstrapped means that you have to really focus on what works and or making something work, because if it doesn't, you have to stop. So when like, let's say working with an agency, if we if we raise a lot of capital, our objective would be to grow, 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 grow as the number one priority. Like I said, our number one priority is is to disrupt the mattress industry to be this household name sleep brands that is the most loved, the highest MPS, all you know, highest customer satisfaction. That's our goal. It's not to grow as fast as possible. And if we were given a lot of money and our objective was to get to a certain multiple and a certain hockey stick, you know, what do you, if you're just a set of small founders, you're going to have to go hire like crazy. You're going to have to, to hire a bunch of agencies and just give them money and just do it. Like, I don't have time to work on that. You see, with with uh, like when we work with an agency, we're always a little bit nervous because we're we're nervous that they're not going to understand what the caliber of quality of work is and the output needs to be for this to work. So um, we learned really quick that when you outsource something, the people that you're outsourcing that work to doesn't care about your objective as much as you do. And when you work with an agency, whether it's like PR or an advertising agency or branding or even even like even like let's just say developers or something like that, we don't really do that because we've built an engineering team. But but let's just say you have to you have to think about the strategy. So if you're going to work with a PR firm, they're not going to come up with all the greatest greatest ideas. You have to. And that was hard for us because we weren't necessarily creative in that way. 
So we had to learn to become creative in that way. We have to come up with the ideas for them to pitch. They'll come up with stuff, but it's not necessarily going to be relevant to your customers or to the market because are as relevant as something you could come up with because you have that context. You know what those customers are. So we learn like you can't just hire an agency and, you know, let's just say PR and just expect that they're going to come up with all the greatest hits. You have to come up with a lot of that direction yourself. And that was something that was tough for us to swallow. But we so you have to put a lot of energy towards thinking through and being being creative in, in, in those ways. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's an example of something that um, I think is a competitive advantage. Our, 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 um, and it's also a challenge. It's also it's a pro and a con. Our competitors don't really have to put that much energy towards it because their primary objective is revenue and not profit. So, um, you know, you could have a kind of crappy commercial television commercial and then sign a national ESPN uh, campaign and just blanket everything. And it doesn't have a return or is it creating market awareness? Like, you know, they, their, their primary objective is to, is to buy customers as fast as possible and get awareness as fast as possible. Um, for us, we need to we want to grow as fast as we can, but we need to grow profitably and sustainably. Um, another thing that it's taught us is it's taught us how to become creative because I would say this team, especially early days, wasn't as creative in, all, in the ways that we needed to be early. We had to learn it or hire the talent that we knew really truly was and truly understood how to do these things. It's also taught us how to build a healthy business, how to like back to an example I used earlier, which is how to manage budgets, how to build a hiring plan and be very careful about who you bring in. Because it's a very expensive move to bring someone in who's not a good fit. So we've just had to move a little bit slower and a little bit more methodical. We've had to be very, very considered with most of our decisions. Honestly, I would say we're very paranoid. We um, like to take risks, but they're very uh, test-driven and methodical. And we're paranoid that we're going to just screw up with everything. So we collect as much information as we can, get as much advising as we can before we take each step. Um, and then that's developed into um, experience and know-how and the ability to then attract talent that can take things to the next level. Yeah, I love that. Your, your disadvantages as a bootstrap company have forced you to be paranoid in a way that actually makes you uh, gives you an edge over the competition. And it, it's sort of something that's in your DNA that they're not going to be able to replicate just because they don't have the same fire under their ass that you do. Uh, a lot of bootstrap founders have trouble in the early days at least, with hiring. It's very difficult to hire you know, the top people in any given field when you're bootstrapping and you're trying to be conservative with money. How did you guys handle hiring early on? And you know, what were some of the first things that started to break that convinced you that you needed to hire more people in the first place? So um, Dehi, my co-founder, and I were really lucky because between the two of us, uh, we had the competency to do most everything. So we had the competency to build a website, do the design, to build the product and do the service and do the finances, we were able to really do a lot of that and wear all those hats, carry the, the full burden on our shoulders. So that's a that's an advantage that we had that I know a lot of startups um, may struggle with. So um, that aside, it was extremely difficult to hire, extremely. And that was one of the reasons why we decided to incorporate in Phoenix. Uh, because when we were first starting, no one wanted to join a mattress company. No one. It was like the dumbest idea they had ever heard of. I mean, it's not in the tech industry. And in Silicon Valley, it just seemed like everyone I was talking to and trying to convince to join was 
either at a big start, a big company with golden handcuffs, or they were a founder in their own company. So you have to convince them to leave those things and to change their lifestyle, take this bet. And it was just really tough. And then on top of it, the cost of living there and the expectations of compensation were astronomical. And that was also a, a huge limiter. So that's why Phoenix really worked well, because Phoenix has a huge talent pool of, of um, tech and design and a lot of those key talents that are tough to find in um, cities other than us, you know, San Francisco and the, and the Silicon Valley region, LA and New York, um, you know, it, it has a lot of great talent like Austin and, and uh, Vegas, these, these, you know, as they say, B cities, I don't think they're um, really second class citizens, but they're not as, you know, the PR and the, and how well known is that they really aren't as much. But, um, you know, Phoenix is one of the top 10 sources of talent that goes into Silicon Valley. So we have first dibs on them and the cost of living is so much lower that we can actually pay them comparably better. And it's like far lower in total cost for us. So it was really, really great. Um, we were also able to, you know, our first office was in a transmission shop of all places. I can't, I still can't figure out and remember how we found that. We were working out of a tra- an automotive transmission shop that had a front office. It had Wi-Fi, clean floors, and we just put some tables in and it worked. And, you know, the cost of that was um, I, I something like a few hundred dollars a month versus a tiny little um, office in Palo Alto might have been, you know, 5000 to 10000 a month that we just couldn't, we just, no way, there's no way we could have done it. So anyways, um, you know, moving to, um, moving to Phoenix was um, definitely helpful for recruiting. Another thing is I, I've, I've learned is um, as you become successful and as you build, especially as a product company, I'm sure digitally as well, as you become more well-known, it gets easier. And, you know, because you've, I mean, honestly, I bet all the talent we would ever need to hire for the rest of the history of this company is somewhere in our customer base. Um, and as a fan, um, a lot of, I would say about 30% of all of our talent now is a customer, um, started as a customer and you have traction and you have growth and you get press and it gets easier. It gets easier as you get bigger, things get easier, which is been honestly great. A lot of the challenges we had early, like hiring, wasn't isn't a challenge anymore. So as you grow, it gets easier to recruit. People see, hey, it's working, or they now have heard of you. Now all of a sudden, mattresses make sense, and now it's a sexy industry to be a part of. The second is um, getting that the first few key talent. They're like, um, you know, they hold. They're like a magnet. So uh, an example is we have like a badass architecture team. And, you know, there's a whole reason why we have them and it, and it's, it's, it gives us a, another competitive advantage. But that first architect was really, really hard to get to join. But once they do, and if they are doing really great work, what happens is other architects see the work that they've done and see, and then they, they buy into your purpose and they want to be a part of it. And it's easier to have them join, just like with engineers and designers. If you have a sort of a crappy uh, software developer as your first first hire, and then if you hire some more crappy developers, if you're going to bring in a like a powerhouse or a 10xer, do they want to work with those people? Do they feel like they're going to be learning from them, or are they going to be the one teaching? And so, the bringing in that talent as soon as you can. Um, then helps get the flywheel started. Because if you bring on, let's just say, I'm going to take it to an extreme. Let's say you were to hire a very famous software developer 
that right there is going to draw in developers because they want to work with them. So it's it's really getting that brand awareness, getting that press, building that you know you know that that page and your 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 website and that story, something that people want to be a part of. Then proving that it's working, and then getting those first key people, which is going to be super hard. That's going to be the founders' jobs early days. That's what really then gets the flywheel started. So you kind of have to hold yourself over and hope to get lucky um, when you when you're um, when you start out and be okay with a lot of people saying no. Now, if I look at it, we get um, and something like um, a few dozen software developers applying um, daily. And if I go back to year one, no one was applying and I had to convince, it's like pulling teeth to get somebody to join. I, the way I did it, the way I first got the first developer to join was I had to get in front of them, sell them on the vision, show them it's, it's starting to kind of work. And it was in a coffee shop and I opened my computer, I you know, opened a terminal, VI dot, and then I switched my computer around and I showed them the code. I'm like, look, look, we built an e-commerce site. Well, it was really me. I built the e-commerce site from scratch, but look at some of this automation I've got going on here. And that's what got them excited was, oh, you haven't done this yet or you haven't done that yet. And I would like to, you know, and then that's, that was really the, the hook for them. So really posing the possibilities of what they could learn or really what they can get their hands on and knowing that that thing that they're going to build is going to have a direct impact or correlation to the growth and success of the business that they would have some equity in was really like how we got a lot of our first key key talents in the different teams that we have. What does the future of Tough to Needle look like? What do you envision happening 10 or 20 years down the road? 10, 20 years, um, I'm, I'm a little bit of a visionary. And so what I would tell you, you'd probably think I'm crazy. Um, let me just go to five years. <laughs> um, yeah, so five years, our objective is to disrupt the mattress industry and to define what that means with some context because different people would, would assume that means different things. We view it as um, the mattress industry as a whole and generally companies have not put customers at the, at the forefront, at the center. They don't care about them as, as stakeholder number one in the decisions that they're making. And um, that really ha- goes back to how this industry has organically developed over time. The brands sell to stores and the stores sell to people. The people in the stores are run by sales salesmen and they're incentivized for commission, getting just getting that customer to buy no matter what. Um, and I'll never see that customer again because I'm not going to have this job in six months. It's just a holdover until I get my, my next job. And then even those stores aren't developing product. So they don't have a direct feedback loop to the customers and they don't have a really a, the ability to, to delight their customers and, um, and iterate on their feedback. And it's the same thing with the, the brands because the brand's customers are the retailers. And the retailers just want something that'll sell. They want flash and gimmicks and whatever it'll take to, to get that single sale for their, sale, their sales force. So they're trying to sell to retailers and what they want, but they don't actually have the the voice of their customer and their ear to that voice and feel accountable to the quality of their products and the technology and innovations. So anyways, that's the context. Our goal is to disrupt the mattress industry and our goal is to, we'll, we know we, we, we would have done it when we become a household name brands with the highest customer satisfaction in our industry, but hopefully setting the bar for the industry's um, customer satisfaction. So the mattress industry is in a dark corner in the business news and in, in something that people can point to and aspire to. 
And that's really our, our, our key objective. Um, we've certainly catalyzed the disruption. We proved the model. We went through all the hard work, um, the late nights and testing and figuring out how to re- do a returns and donations and all of that stuff, free trial, true warranties that really set the, set the um, playbook out there for um, our, our lookalikes. So they, they had the playbook to, to follow. Um, which, you know what is great? It, it catalyzed this movement and it's going to change the industry and the customers are going to win in the end. We've catalyzed it. We have not successfully gotten to um, that household name status. I, technically, I guess if another company was uh, had a, the highest customer satisfaction and became a household name brand, we would have completed our mission you know, indirectly through that other company. But as I see it, none of our competition really has this as a priority. And so um, we really have to really have to do it. And I see us getting there in, in, uh, in, in five years. I mean, we've, we're now in several big box uh, retailers. Some of them have been announced and some of them, some of them haven't, you know, between, um, and, you know, and Amazon. So between the channels, we're in the right channels and our direct direct uh, website is um, is still the majority of our volume. It is very very busy, and um, and then even in our retail stores, we have a very aggressive retail uh, rollout plan, and it's going to take a few years to get there. But we should we should get there in, in, in five years or less. So in five years, your household name. Let's hear these crazy visionary ten and twenty year plans. Um, I'm not going to speak to them. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. You're not, you're not going to get it out of me, what? but you know, <laughs> people going to be eating tough to needle mattresses. Are they going to be building houses? Out of you, know, mattresses? I mean, you know, um, as we, as we grow, one of the things, um, so here's a big difference between us and, and some of the bigger companies that people know, we don't view ourselves as a mattress company. We view ourselves more as a sleep company. If you listen to customers, they're not just wanting a mattress. They want a pillow. They want sheets. They want bedding. They want frames. And we don't want to just private label these things. We want to design them from the beginning. We want to treat those with feedback and iterate just like everything else. Our other products are not second-class citizens. They're not just some accessories in a dark corner. They're great products that could be launched as their own independent companies in of themselves. So our pillow should stand up and beat most of the other pillows um, other companies have in sheets. We're not... We're not looking at mattress companies as a comparison to how our sheets perform. We're looking at sheet companies and bedding companies. How can we meet that bar and raise that bar? So if you were to define us as a sleep company, what you can imagine some of the products that we may develop. If you look at, if we did this interview a year ago, I would be telling you there's a lot of new products coming, but now you can go to TN.com and see we've launched a lot of new products um, from bedding to to bed frames and um, and and the like, but we have a lot more coming. Um, I believe we are now leading um, some of the some of these newer brands and product lineup. But we will will uh, will definitely um, start really pulling ahead later this year as far as um, what we offer. But all of those products are have the same attention to detail, of customer feedback, customer satisfaction, and the whole goal of blowing away all the other products that are in the markets in those particular product segments. I see we're running pretty close to the end of our time here, but while we're on the subject of vision, I've got to ask, what are your personal goals? And I know that most successful founders that I talk to are very aligned with their business's mission, but at the same time, you're a human being. You've got to have your own individual goals, your own individual personal desires. So what are those, and what do you hope to accomplish by running Tough to Needle and growing it to be huge? Um, I would say, so selfishly, what my personal goals are, my, I used to game, you know, game a lot when I was, when I was a kid, business has become my, my game now. So I, I actually have a lot of fun in business, but 
generally, I want to be proud of my work. And that's going to come from solving a problem that matters to the community and delighting customers, delighting our, our team members, you know, all of that stuff is just, you know, pulls on the emotional strings for me. So being proud and being and crossing the finish line and completing and accomplishing what we set out to start um, is really my, my primary goal. Um, secondly is time. So as, as you grow, founders have to fill the gap and, and take on some of the toughest challenges that the, that the company faces as it's, you know, and, and your job as a founder is also, you know, find people that are smarter than you and better than you in those, in those spots and hand the keys over. So my secondary goal is time. So I need time to be able to, um, to pull away and be able to think more strategically time to study and read and pursue my own personal interests outside of work too, so that I can, you know, keep moving at a sustainable pace and not burn out. So, um, you know, and then I think my third is just to have fun as I, as I go along. I mean, I have a, I have a, you know, I'm married and, and day he has a family um, and kids and, you know, my parents, I convinced them to pack up when they retired to pack up and move to Phoenix and make sure I spend time with them. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really to, to, to be proud of my work, to accomplish what we set out to do and to be gaining time as we go along so that I can continue my own personal development as a, as a business person, a culture champion, a, you know, a product developer and all of that as, as I go along. What's your advice for people who are on the opposite end of the spectrum from you, these brand new entrepreneurs who are just now considering starting a business? What would you tell them? Well, all I can really speak to from experience is what I've done um, and what has worked for me. But I would say when you're when you're sitting down and thinking about what you're going to do, think about the problem that you're actually solving and ask yourself, is it actually important? Are there other people other than yourself? Yourself is the best customer because you, you know whether it's fixed it for yourself or not. Start with a problem and then break it down. What is the what are the things I can do minimally the, the fastest to actually like solve this problem in a way that would be enticing enough for somebody to take the bet on you when you're brand new and you're just starting. Because what you don't have is you don't have all, if you're going to bootstrap, you don't have all the capital and the press to drum up that excitement. And for those early adopters and early evangelists to just take the take the plunge, you know, just to see if it works or not, you have to convince people and it's tough. So start with that. Make sure the problem is needed and and test it. Don't don't I, I would say like how can you reduce the amount of time it would take for you to get an answer? How can you get somebody to pay you, someone you don't know, to actually pay you for what you're proposing to do? If we did it in a week. That's that may be an out, we may be an outlier, that may be an exception. But how can you do it as fast as possible without wasting too much of your time? Because if it doesn't work, don't you want to know about that right now or as soon as possible so you can get on to the next the next idea? So um, that's probably the biggest thing, the biggest piece of advice um, that I wish I I was told um, early on, and, and luck, you know, thankfully we kind of we kind of ended up there before we started. But you know, maybe it'll help you, maybe it won't. I think developers especially need to hear that because it's so tempting as a programmer to sit down and hack on something for two months, six months, two years uh, without ever really putting it out to see if it's going to work. So I think that's that's great advice. And people are going to kill me if I don't ask you this. Uh, but earlier you mentioned that you've burned out on reading business books, having read most of the good ones already. What do you consider to be some of the good ones? Oh, um, <laughs> I have no favorite book. I only have snippets from different books that I like. One I, I like to recommend frequently is the halo effect. 
And um, it really frames what, what, what I got away from that is the difference between reality and perception and the reality and the truth I've always viewed as what really, really mattered. But, you know, perception matters a lot, too. And the halo and how you tell your narrative, how people perceive you um, is such a critical factor when you start your company, when you talk to your team, even in how you present yourself as a founder amongst your team and, and the outside world is the, the halo and the narrative that you're crafting. I mean, that book could probably be distilled in like five or 10 pages, but there's some really good stories in there that really kind of sets the context and the why behind it. But that That's definitely a good one. Um, I'd have to think about it a little bit more because I wouldn't want to to just throw books out there <laughs> um, and set people down a path, um, you know, but that, that's, that's, that's one I would say for sure. Well, listen, JT, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate you going the distance and doing an extra long episode with me. Is there anything else that you'd like listeners to know about what you're up to and what Tough to Needle is up to? Um, I would say, well, we covered a lot of material, but I would say, um, you know, check us out, tn.com, go, go to our about page, check out our medium page. If you want to see some of our pieces that we've written, um, and you're, you're, you guys are, um, you're welcome to reach out to me anytime. Um, my email is jt at tn.com. If you ever have questions, um, or want to, want to bounce ideas. You got to be careful just giving your email address out like that. I'm going to end up emailing (laughs) you for advice. Anyway, thanks so much, JT. Right on. Have a good one. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.